Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. I'm Kevin Flynn with Rebecca Lavoy and Aaron Fox, and these are their stories. You think you know who did it, but you don't know who did it. Law and order, law and order, law and order. It's no ordinary police procedural, baby. It's the FNOG of police procedurals, baby. Law and order, law and order, law and order, law and order. These are their stories, these are their stories. Welcome to These Are Their Stories, the podcast about Network TV's most enduring crime franchise and the real-life cases that inspired their shows. I'm Kevin Flynn. Each podcast will break down an episode from either Criminal Intent, SVU, or Original Recipe. And today we're looking at Law & Order Prime, Season 13, Episode 24, Smoke. Joining me to do just that is true crime author and host of the podcast, Crime Writers On, Rebecca Lavoy. Hello, Rebecca. I prefer to be called Rebecca Lavoy Prime, please. <laughs> As opposed to original recipe, Rebecca? I don't know where this prime thing came from. I preferred original recipe. What about mothership? I like original recipe. Just no, going to say that. Like <laughs> I say, I'm going to my Law & Order thesaurus to keep it fresh. Rounding out our panel is our special guest, TVGuide.com reporter, Aaron Fox. Hi, Aaron. Hi, guys. How are you? I'm so thrilled to be here. Well, we're thrilled to have you. In fact, we were like trying to make heads or tails of your resume. You have done like everything, right? I have done everything. I've had a very bizarre career. And yeah, I started out young in college getting an internship at Days of Our Lives and uh, would secretly change the channel in the office to General Hospital so I could get both in at the same time. Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. And then when I went to the Soap Digest Awards, I totally ditched the cast of Days of Our Lives and went over to the General Hospital side and talked to Maurice Bernard, who I drooled over for about 45 minutes and then <laughs> Is got he it nice, together. though, Sonny? Uh, Is he nice amazing. in real life? Really? Amazing. And he was like so attentive to his wife. Huh. And I was like, I love you so much and you're Sonny and I don't care what you have done. I <laughs> love you. He is, however, very short. Just saying. Well, I am, as you know, if you listen to Crime Writers On, I do have a relationship with General Hospital. Yes, I do know that. And with the Young and the Restless. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As and do I. I. Yeah, I just kind of feel like if you're not watching those shows, you're just lying to yourself. That's how I feel. <laughs> the best part of Days of Our Lives is now that, you know, I have kids and I'm home sometimes when the show is on, I turn it on and I'm like, I know exactly what's happening. Nothing has changed. I, I, I don't have to do any research. And then you get to see the other actors who are no longer on, you know, Guiding Light or As the World Turns have come to the remaining four soap operas. And you're like, oh, Vincent Irizarry, I missed you so much. Thank you for coming back. <laughs> and, you know, is, how do you feel when you see soap opera actors on Law & Order? Because they're on all the time. I love it because when I was younger, I always knew I was going to be in entertainment in some capacity. But when I was younger, I used to be, I mean, really into soap operas. We would all go home after school and watch before play practice or whatever. And um, I would always say, like, these people are so talented. 
and they're on soap operas. Why aren't they doing more stuff? And then when Law and Order came along, I was like, thank you. Thank you for giving them a platform. That's not just a Lifetime movie of the week. Kim Zimmer. <laughs> Kim Zimmer is a great actress. She's amazing. And like I think I saw her in like one MacGyver. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> womp womp. <laughs> now I thought I saw a photograph of you on the red carpet. Yes. Before I even really knew what podcasting was, we did have a TVGuy.com podcast and I did do a few episodes of that. Got really great response, and then they were like, podcasts aren't catching on. We're done with this. Oh, no. Yeah, it was such bullshit. If only (laughs) they knew. If only they knew. And so um, then I transitioned to whenever the other guy, uh, Michael Lasiello, couldn't do um, interviews. They're like, Aaron, give it a shot. You're great. And so I ended up doing a lot of in-studio interviews with people like Mary McDonald and Edward James Olmos from Battlestar Galactica. Oh, my God. I don't want to hear about it. Let's hang up. (laughs) (laughs) I have a signed toaster with Mary McDonald saying, you have a great mind on it. Oh, that's great. So what was the interview that you did that you couldn't control your squee? That was probably one of them, but um, I didn't actually get to get this on tape, but Joss Whedon came into the office and Michael was, you know, he's so much more talented and well-known than I am, um, or I was back then. And so he got to do the interview with Joss, but Joss came outside and I just said, I have to nerd out with you for a second because you love musical theater and I love musical theater. And did you ever see that Sondheim thing? And blah, blah, blah. And we had like a five minute conversation about this specific Sondheim special where he like knew that I got him and I literally was like jumping out of my body. And then the other one was a phoner I did with Kyle Chandler from Friday Night Lights because mm. Coach Taylor for the win. <laughs> <laughs> he is delicious and polite and fabulous. And his kid was there having a play date. And I was like, oh, just marry me now. So you're a major media consumer. Tell us about your relationship with Law & Order. I was actually kind of a TV snob and my coworker on Gilmore Girls used to watch Law and Order 24-7. I was like, why do you watch that stupid show? It's so formulaic. It's so lame. I cannot believe this. You're, you're better than that. We work on freaking Gilmore Girls. West Wing is down the street. Like, come on. And she was like, I don't know. There's just something about it. There's just, I, it's just like comforting. I've seen them all. I love them all. And I was like, okay, whatever. And then when I was pregnant with my first daughter, I sort of was like, I'm not going to watch anything scary while I'm pregnant. But when I had to be up, you know, every two hours, there was always a law and order on. (laughs) And it was amazing. And I really grew to find comfort in it and just loved it so much. And then one of my other girlfriends, uh, Lisa Angelo, shout out, she put together a list for me of all the SVUs I needed to watch that had like phenomenal Stabler, Benson, like tension and like Mm. sexual drama. (laughs) Like she put together an actual list and I watched them all and then I watched them all in order and I just couldn't get enough. And then, you know, those early morning feedings, TNT always had them on and I didn't even care if I'd seen the one like three days earlier. I was like, all right, law and order's on. Now I feel better. I feel better about the world because... Somebody's about to go down. So, Aaron, of all the franchises, which two cops are your favorite detective team? Favorite law and order detective team. Okay, so I have to I have to do two because 
for OG, I love uh, Briscoe and Green, and I, I love Green because of the same reason Rebecca does, which is he's super hot. <laughs> and um, in this episode particularly, I liked that they sort of switched places a little bit. Like, Briscoe surprised me, and he surprised me. Like, he was a little snotty, and Briscoe was a little bit, you know, more chill, and I was and more sensitive. And I was like, huh, this is interesting. I like their dynamic a lot. I enjoy their episodes a lot. But for Rebecca, I don't know if you're an X-Files fan. Oh, yeah. I'm an X-Files fan. So do you remember him from the baseball episode called The Unnatural? I sure do. Absolutely. Okay. So I was going to say, if you haven't seen that, you will fall in love with him times one billion. He's gorgeous in that episode. He's gorgeous. (laughs) It's so well written. He's so charming. He's so adorable. I don't care if he's an alien. I wanted to just scoop him up and take him home with me. You wanted to get probed. I know. I get it. Kevin, who wrote that episode of X-Files? I think David Duchovny, David Duchovny wrote, wrote yeah, it. Right. I can't believe I just out X-Files you almost there for no, a second. No, not a chance. And it's about baseball. I know. Which is his <laughs> thing. Oh, I love Duchovny. He should have won an Emmy for that episode. And so should have Jesse. Let's just talk about that. He was so fabulous in that episode. But anyway. And then the the other one, I when I wrote to you guys, I gave you my nicknames for Olivia and Stabler, which is Stabson or Olivia-it, based on how That's I feel about them. relationship names, yeah. Stabson. Yes. You know, the real fans, like the real shippers call them something much nicer, but I call them Stabson and Olivia because sometimes <laughs> they're idiots and sometimes you want to stab them. But sometimes you're just like, I love them so much. Like that episode that's so weird about the tigers and the animals and yes. she has to like whip her shirt off and give him a hug and you're like, hello, <laughs> how you doing? <laughs> and so who's your favorite prosecutorial team? Favorite law and order district attorney prosecutorial team. I'm going to go rogue on this one and uh, Elizabeth. Ro- no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> JK. Um, sorry, Mike Dowdy. <laughs> um, I love Alex. Alex Cabot. I love that she's bitchy and feisty and makes everybody work really hard for what they get. I like that she faked their death and like when she, Olivia sees her for the first time and her eyes well up with tears that she has zero emotion for Olivia. Like right. I just love her. She's stone I, cold at Alex Cabot. She's I love stone it. cold and I love it because she just doesn't let anybody get away with anything. I like how she calls the cops and all their crap. Like they, she's yes. the one prosecutor that, like, when they say just get me an indictment, she's like, "Nope, not going to do that." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> find more shit, idiots. Do your yeah. cop jobs, cops. Yeah. I don't know if you've heard about this thing, but it's called the Supreme Court, and they mean business. <laughs> and I'm, totally. I, it's called the law. And I went to a thing called law school. And I, even though you're Olivia Benson, I'm not in love with you like every other DA you've ever worked with. Yeah, you went oh, to my- law school, but it was at Hudson. <laughs> we are Hudson. Where the bad guys go to school. <laughs> Where good kids go to die or go to jail. <laughs> or get raped or yeah. learn to rape, right? Yeah. And what was the last episode where, like, Hudson is such a prestigious, prestigious university? School. I was like, what the Bullshit. fuck? When Stabler's daughter got in there, no way is it a prestigious school. I know, school. right? Yeah. <laughs> Depends on what episode it is, whether it's a prestigious school or it's a party school or it's both. <laughs> Now let's look at the first half of this episode. Briscoe and Green pull up to the scene of a fire where a baby has fallen to its death. The burned apartment belongs to famous comedian Monty Bender. Monty's live-in nutritionist and hairstylist say during the fire, Monty held the baby out the window to get him away from the smoke, but he slipped. This is where the fire started. Somebody dumped an ashtray in here, and that's all she wrote. 
They first saw the smoke come underneath the door. Flames hit the curtain and the carpet. AC helped it spread. What about the smoke alarms? Turns out they were all disconnected. Monty didn't like the beeping when he burned his toast. So you thinking this is arson? Lit butt and a basket full of paper? Too early to tell. While they cannot figure out whether the fire was arson, they continue looking into Monty's life. They see that he's cut some big checks to the Morales family. Dad claims he was paid because he wrote Monty's crappy movies. Monty's personal masseur says that the star has a big secret. The masseur said that they would drive around in a cliché. I mean, an ice cream truck. (laughs) While Monty scouted for sexy children from a peephole in the back. Well, the baby is named Robbie, but he may as well be named MacGuffin because his death is just the catalyst to get Briscoe and Green to this child molestation story. Yeah, it actually occurred to me after we watched this episode, did we ever even actually find out what the hell happened to the baby when it was all said and done? No, we did not. No, well, I rewatched it for that sole purpose because, first of all, I was so completely aghast at their reaction to the limp dead baby walking past them and he's like not so funny i mean that's all they got with this limp dead baby walking past them and i was like wow okay but then i rewatched it and basically what they were saying was he was trying to like get him away from the smoke but there wasn't really that much smoke there yet so basically he was just a clumsy asshole who dropped his kid for no reason. Right, but we never actually got it. We just know that he was dead before he was dropped out the, or something, right? Yeah, it's left undetermined, but but we know <laughs> that there is more to that story than meets the eye. Okay. <laughs> but because they don't feel like they can make a prosecution, they go on this right turn, which leads them to an ice cream truck. Yes, yes. The right. um, weirdest... Um, by the way, so we're supposed to assume that Monty, right, as they keep referring to him, is like super fucking famous right Right, because anytime anyone talks about him it's like he's super fucking famous he's more famous than jerry seinfeld or something right (laughs) Right. totally why excuse my language i've already sworn like three times why the fuck does he need to ride around in an ice cream truck to find molestation victims because if he sat in the front seat it'd be a big crowd that's what he said He may be super fucking famous, but you know what he's not? Super fucking funny. He didn't crack a single joke the whole time. That's true. I would not have laughed. Briscoe was way funnier, especially. um, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Even the captain was fine. I mean, she she was like ripping jokes left and right. And this guy was like, oh, twinkle, twinkle, little star. <laughs> I, I feel like this is an SVU episode. And with the sex part and the dead baby, it just felt a little bit more SVU to me. I just was like, yeah, this is a this is a tough one. This is a rough bummer of an episode for about 30 reasons. It's a little um, schizophrenic as far as I think the writers want to handle it. Did anybody catch the tabloid headlines uh, when they walked by the newsstand with the headlines on all the newspapers were about? Oh, no. Shoot, I did. I, didn't. I made a note. One of them was Monty's baby boom. <laughs> oh, God. So I mean, so bad. This is very much sort of a little wink and a nod to not only the tabloids, but maybe trying to, I don't know, keep this from getting maudlin. It was also a wink and a nod yeah. to sort of celebrity life. And we hear about celebrities and their weirdness. Now, Aaron would have more experience with this than we would. But, like, he had a live-in nutritionist. He had a beer gut. (laughs) 
Oh my God. I kept calling her Beer Gut the whole episode that's what of my I, head. Yeah. Beer that's Gut, what Beer I, Gut, Beer <laughs> Gut. Yeah. Like, who would name characters that unless they're literally making fun of celebrities? Like, literally, right? That's right. what that was about, yeah. right? They, they literally were. And having lived in Los Angeles at the time that that was going on, it was 24 7 coverage of the alleged cases is based off of it was really just 20- we can't we have no idea yeah, what it was no, <laughs> yeah, no idea so yeah i mean it was 24 7 coverage here of the michael jackson debacle and everything that went along with it but it it speaks so much so to people who live in in areas where celebrities live whether it's los angeles or new york or whatever but the ridiculousness of their lives and who they pay to do what and the craziness with which people treat them like with kid gloves and I even felt in this episode a little bit you know the oh I saw the last flick and oh you know oh how could you know when he's in the hospital and he's like oh how could you have known and I didn't know if he was actually just like trying to get him to keep talking or if he was actually like oh I'm buying into the celebrity crap right it is such a a thing out here and how people are treated and how people get away with a lot of bad shit it's awful beer gut like never flipped beer gut was loyal she was. She knew what side of her bread was buttered. She exactly. Now, what was her job again? She was the hairstylist no, or stylist? No, she was a stylist. Okay. 24 hours on call. Right, to help him pick out his shirts or whatever, right? Did anybody yeah. notice that at the end when they were going in to arrest Monty, Beer Gut wasn't Beer Gut. That was a totally different chick. What? <laughs> Rewind and watch. It was Fred. Fred was Fred. But uh-huh. Beer Gut was not. I guess she was busy that day having a Beer Gut. I don't it was, know. It was Lindsay and Sydney Greenbush all over again. Oh, just like God. swapping the other actress. It's like, that's totally like a stand-in. Okay, <laughs> let's go with it. Hey, it's like, hey, sunlight's burning. We got to have somebody come out of that. Jill Hennessy's not available. Just, let's just stick her sister in stick the her in there, yeah. <laughs> Hey, so in this episode, we have a, hey, it's that guy. Hey, it's that guy. Who recognizes Mr. Morales? I do, I do. Yes. Julio from Dexter. Yes, yes. Julio from Dexter. Yeah, Detective Batista. What's the, what's the actor's name? Um, that one I don't it's know. I, David, that guy from Dexter? It's David Zayas. Yeah, okay. I couldn't. I remember because I could not say his last name, and I was, I'm going to butcher this. Zayas, okay. Yeah, and then there's, what's his name? Larry Miller? Yeah, now talk about a weird cameo. Yes. It's comedian Larry Miller playing Larry Miller. <laughs> we don't do what we do for the money. What do you do it for? I can't speak for money, but then again, I don't drive a stick. Now, that's funny. It wasn't supposed to be luck. Monty and I had a couple of drinks after a couple of shows a couple of decades ago. And you became a couple? <laughs> what, you went out and chased women? I heard rumors. What kind of rumors? I heard some kid accused him of inappropriate behavior. Like using the wrong fork? I don't think Monty would pay seven figures to cover that up. Yeah, talking about pedophile rumors and being... And how he doesn't drive a stick. Uh, oh, Which God. Line. <laughs> so awkward. <laughs> now, why doesn't Briscoe notice this is also Michael Dobson, the asshole club owner he arrested twice for murder? <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> because you it's a law and order universe you, where you horrible... Yeah, this is a law and order universe where horrible criminals can become DAs in future oh, episodes. Totally. You never know what's going to happen. So I have a question for you. Yeah. So the guy from Dexter's actor his name what's his name again david zayas okay what's the name of his character uh he was john morales was it morales it is or morales or morales oh right because in every goddamn scene it was pronounced differently by every actor even sometimes the same actor would pronounce it differently 
in the same sentence. Like Birgit? <laughs> yeah, like Birgit. And I think it's just showing the super whiteness of the cast. I so mean, white. It's a very so white cast. White. We even yeah. had Serena Sutherland, the whitest cast member of all. Oh, my God. But I have to say, as much as I cannot stand her, she was better in this episode than I've seen her in a lot of others. Yeah, she was pretty good. Well, when she was talking to Sammy in his dorm room, I actually felt emotion for one of the first times with her. And I was like... So did she for the first time. (laughs) (laughs) So, So Aaron, I have three words for you. Yeah. Ice cream truck. Yeah. Monty bought an ice cream truck. I drove it. What did Marty do? He looked through the peepholes at the kids when he saw one he liked. I'd invite the parents up to his estate in the Berkshires. And the parents would bring their kids? But I never laid a hand on one of them. First of all, where do they park this? (laughs) And and I like how he says, I haven't done it in years. So I guess he upgraded to the tinted black SUV with the murdered out windows. I'm not sure because I know he didn't stop trying to get some kids into his house. So... Yeah, it it was a big cliche and a big unnecessary cliche. I thought that was over the top, like trying to make it more Neverlandish. Because that guy, he didn't, you know, he didn't come off as creepy as we wanted him to. Yeah, I was just going to say that does it hurt the episode that Monty isn't portrayed as being super creepy? Yeah, I mean, I guess we could all say we know enough true crime to say that, you know, can be the guy next door, could be the celebrity that you think you trust and you love all of their movies and all of that stuff. But. It did strike me as he was more like, how you doing, than it was like the creepy guy that would have the toy room with the bed in it. And it just, he didn't seem all that creepy. So I think the casting was a little off there. All right. I just want to congratulate both of you. Yeah. Because we've gotten like pretty far into this episode and no one has yet mentioned upyourbutt.net. <laughs> oh, I have notes on that. <laughs> all right. Oh, well, then how about we get to that, Okay. Let's take a look at the second half of this episode. An autopsy, which for once takes more than one commercial break to complete, reveals that there was no smoke in the baby's lungs, meaning he fell from the window before the fire. But arson investigators can't determine if the fire was intentional, and Monty's entourage is sticking to the story. But there's nothing to tell. Damn it, a kid is dead. Did you miss the day in stylist school when they taught you that covering up a murder is just as bad as doing a murder yourself? What makes you think I'm covering? There was no smoke in the baby's lungs, which means he was dead before the fire. Meanwhile, Green finds a copy of a sealed deposition where the Morales' oldest son, college student Sammy, testified Monty performed oral sex on him when he was 11 years old. The parents say they took the cash settlement because their youngest son has a heart condition. The judge excludes the deposition, leaving Jack and Serena with no way to charge Monty. Instead, they go after Morales. Morales. You can't even yeah. say it. Yeah. Go ahead. I dare you yeah. to say it again. Instead, they go after Morales, Morales. charging him, <laughs> charging them with taking the money in a conspiracy to hide a criminal act. On the stand, Sammy says he made up the assault story so his parents could get the money, but a light bulb goes off in Jack's head when Sammy says the incident happened on Labor Day weekend. He points out the million-dollar check was cut before the assault, and his parents had essentially pimped him out to the creepy comedian. So we need to talk about where Green found this deposition, the muckraking website upyourbutt.net. <laughs> upyourbutt.net. Basically, I feel like 
And I guess I guess Aaron could probably answer this question that just could not stop ringing in my head, which was like, this was the writers of the show basically fucking with the actors, right? Like, how many people can we get to say upyourbutt.net? Now, his name was all over this one website, upyourbutt.net. Upyourbutt.net. Oh, come on, Jack. How can we trust anything on something called upyourbutt.net? I was surprised. I mean, up your butt is not like that sketchy of a saying, really, but... I just was surprised standards and practices was okay with that, judging by all the other gay jokes and like mm-hmm. sort of gay hints all the time. It was like, it was like, this is starting to be like, you know, drives with a stick. It's starting to be offensive. And like the upyourbutt.net, I was like, something's going on here. Yeah. Like, was upyourbutt.com taken? <laughs> The fact that .org. It had to go to dot .net. Yeah, yeah and we looked up, and that, that URL, I believe, is available, right? It is, if anyone wants to get it you now. did not check it out. I, of course I did. Please. I had to find out. Of course we did. Oh, my God, I love you guys. We were thinking about having some shirts made. But now we can't because some listener's going to do it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, get all my, I get all my legal briefs from upyourbutt.net. <laughs> oh, my God. It well, now, just- you, like Ellen, you're going to need to do boxers with this saying instead of t-shirts. Yeah. <laughs> One of my favorite things is when Fred Thompson has to talk about upyourbutt.net, former senator Fred totally. Thompson, and he says uh, upyourbutt.net, not exactly what Bill Gates had in mind, as if, by the way, Bill Gates was in the website business, which he was not. Yeah, yeah. Right. But it was like, that's the only computer reference that like, you know, they could come up with at the time was Bill Gates and upyourbutt.net in the same sentence. It was pretty great. Yeah, they, I, yeah, I'm sure this whole episode was just an exercise to see if they could get Fred Thompson to say up your butt. <laughs> net. But speaking of Fred Thompson and how cornpone was the homespun parable about Mrs. McGillicuddy? Mrs. McGillicuddy. Oh. <laughs> so Mrs. McGillicuddy had two boys. One sat on the front porch all day and the other one went out and did the honey for food for dinner. The war between the states broke out and one day the Sarge showed up, knocked on the door and says, I'm sorry, ma'am, but I'm going to have to take one of your sons into battle with me. It's your choice. It's hardly the same thing. Well, she looked the old Sarge straight in the eye and without hesitating for a second said, you know, my husband's down by the fishing pond. Take him. It had to be Mrs. McGillicuddy. <laughs> my eyes actually fell out of my head when that happened. I rolled them back so far. They actually fell on the floor. I had to put them back in. It was, yeah, Cornpone City. Yeah, this is like just all, again, another effort to show just how down home Arthur Branch is. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, and it had to be Mrs. McGillicuddy. And Mrs. McGillicuddy, to me, is like a TV name, right? Didn't Richie Cunningham used to talk about Mrs. McGillicuddy, like, on Happy Days? Yes. I feel like Mrs. You're McGillicuddy. Totally right. Yes. Yeah, Mrs. McGillicuddy is like the old-fashioned, old-fashioningest of TV names to me. So when Fred Thompson invoked it, I also kind of felt like it was a little bit of a writer's joke. Like, what story would he tell? It would be one about Mrs. McGillicuddy. Mrs. McGillicuddy. And the fishing crick. (laughs) (laughs) If only he had like a little piece of straw in his mouth or like a toothpick, it would have been complete. So for the Moraleses or Moraleses. Moraleses. Moraleses, Yeah. So this sounds like a real Sophie's choice. Uh, pimp out your 11-year-old for the money or let your baby brother die. No, I think it was more of a Sophie's choice of living in a crappy neighborhood versus living on Riverside Drive is what it came down to. Because every time they would visit them in their apartment and they would talk about needing the money for their child, I was just like, I don't know, it's a pretty freaking nice apartment. I think you're doing yeah. okay. 
I thought that the apartment was the tell. And as you know, I'm obsessed with the sets on Law & Order. I'm obsessed mm-hmm. with like when they go to a townhouse, I'm like, that's like a $35 million piece of property right there. When they go to anyone's apartment, I'm always like, that is a dropped ceiling. That is crappy. <laughs> I think um, there's some subtext to the show that you're really not focusing on. <laughs> no, I'm not. But I do actually know. I mean, the people who do this you know, location scouting for this show, I mean, they have so many locations between the what is it, like 1,000-plus episodes of all the uh, shows in this franchise, you know that they know what things are supposed to look like and what people are supposed to live in those places. And the fact that they put those cards up saying where it is, it's Riverside Drive, it's a large apartment with tall ceilings, that to me was a tell that it wasn't all about the younger kid and him being sick. That was a tell to me. I mean, I could be wrong, but real estate is a tell to me. Really, it wasn't the hey, it's that guy who apparently <laughs> got I mean, it. He happened to get a couple uh, no. seven and six figure checks. No, there. it's my Zillow habit. That's really the tell. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bad habit to get into. Um, I just thought that the sort of the twist at the end was just so ridiculously heartbreaking and awful. And I know a lot of parents in the real life situation with Michael Jackson were lambasted on TV and online and everywhere for having allowed these things to occur. And then their twist on it was like, oh, wait, they did it on purpose and they did it for the money. And it it did go to help the child, but they're also living this really nice life because of it. And they don't seem all that sorry about it. One of my favorite things that happened in the episode was when Sammy... You know, Jack has, by the way, the moment in the courtroom where he figures out what happened. Mm. Classic McCoy moment. (laughs) If they could have had like a cartoon light bulb pop up over (laughs) Jack's head, like he telegraphed it like, I mean, he's a good actor, right? Yep. But that was about as ham-fisted as it gets from Sam Waterston. It was just like, doing, like I get it. (laughs) Yeah. But when the kid asks, can I testify again? Your parents were paid a million dollars the week before you went up to Monty's estate. You sold me? It wasn't like that. What was it like? It was only one time, Sammy. We did it for Dave. What about me? I was 11 years old. You knew what he was going to do to me. You weren't going to die. What do you call this? We'll talk about this later. Like hell. Can I testify again? Like That was a legitimately heartbreaking moment in this oh, episode yeah. full of like unbelievable things. You know, the kid lived in a dorm room at Hudson University with like a full-size refrigerator in it. By the way, I know I'm obsessing on real estate. That was also like a stretch to me. Yeah. And there was a lot of things that sort of pulled you out of the episode, details like that. But when he said, can I testify again? That was a really, really good Law & Order moment. It it was a great moment. And I just thought this kid was uh, really um, on point the whole episode, sort of with the attitude and then with the denial and then with the trying to cover up for his parents and then the realization moments of, you know, how much he has sacrificed for his brother and that his parents were sort of, not sort of, they were completely responsible for what happened to him. I mean, it just felt very real and very heartbreaking. I, I felt for him and I was glad he got up there and gave him a piece of his mind. They know. sold him. Yeah, they they yeah, they should be in jail for a lot longer than whatever they charged him with. It was like, what did they charge him with? It was something... I thought, I mean, isn't this like human trafficking? Like, this is like they sold their kid for a million bucks. Well, it sounded like at first they wanted to do the thing where they were going to bring in the parents and put pressure on them so that they would testify against Monty and that they weren't actually sincere targets in the investigation until mm-hmm. they realized that, oh, no, that they are actually accessories here. 
Right. Yeah. No, they're perpetrators. They're perps. They're perps. They are perps in a nice Riverside Drive apartment, but they are, in fact, perps. And they're so perps that we never find out what happened to the poor... <laughs> murdered baby. The well, that is the big question left unanswered as to whether the baby was dead before the fire and what happened in that apartment. So does anyone want to venture uh, an opinion on what actually happened in the apartment? I think the baby died by accident because of neglect and they, they set the apartment on fire to cover it up. So he like, dropped the baby and then they set the fire so that they would have an excuse to have dropped the baby. That's why, how I figured it went down. I think that he just dropped the baby. I think he was an idiot and he dropped the baby. And so then, because um, the guy, Fred, didn't Fred seem sincere? Like, this will be my last cigarette and blah, blah, blah. I don't know. I thought he was sincere. But, um... Well, he's a better actor than Monty. <laughs> <laughs> he should have been oh, the one wait. doing the films. Oh, wait. Do you think that he was abusing the baby? Is that what you were thinking? Oh, God. No. Can we I not mean, go there? This no, is an SVU episode, yeah, after yeah, this all. Is that, SVU no, that episode. isn't what I was thinking. <laughs> okay. No. Oh, God. It's got dark fast. Yeah. No, <laughs> I just thought maybe the baby thought this was all bullshit and decided I'm jumping. <laughs> <laughs> I got a little Allie McBeal baby. Yeah, oh, a little <laughs> Jesse Elmar was like, I've seen this shit before. <laughs> Good point. Good ref. Nice. That was a really good. Nice callback. God, I love that show. Oh, but can we just talk one second about the the masseuse, the masseuse? Yes. Yeah. Um, did anybody think he was like, uh, like poor man's, like so poor man, maybe homeless man's version of trying to be Mark Wahlberg? I kept trying to like, <laughs> I kept trying to like tune out that he I wanted him to say like say hello to your mother for me you know like <laughs> the whole time he was so over the top and ridiculous I like the interrogation that Briscoe was doing where yeah. he's like trying to get to the bottom and, and the he says okay I'm gay you happy Briscoe goes <laughs> I'm thrilled I'm thrilled <laughs> <laughs> let's take a look at the real life story that inspired this episode it's time for rip from the headlines you think you know who did you it think you know did it, but you don't know who did it. You don't know who did it. Rip from the headlines. This episode borrows much from the life of Michael Jackson. In 1993, a 13-year-old boy accused the singer of molesting him. The boy was able to identify for police unique characteristics of Jackson's genitalia. Later, the boy's father was recorded trying to shake down the pop star for money. Though investigators didn't have enough to charge Jackson, the family accepted an out-of-court financial settlement. Jackson would marry his nurse and father three children. While on tour in Germany in 2002, with fans screaming below his hotel window, Jackson dangled his nine-month-old son over the edge of the balcony. Images of the incident enraged the public. Jackson later told a documentary crew that children would stay overnight at his Neverland ranch, always with their parents' permission. Though he denied anything improper... More children came forward with abuse allegations. They claimed Jackson gave them alcohol, then had sex with them. Police charged him with seven counts of child molestation. In 2005, after a five-month trial, he was acquitted of all charges. Michael Jackson died in 2009 of cardiac arrest, brought on by an overdose of prescription drugs. His personal physician served two years in prison for involuntary manslaughter. So not much of a mystery who this was. <laughs> that was dark, man. This is a dark episode. It's a dark story. It's funny because I feel like Michael Jackson's death has taken some of the public 
scrutiny away from the things he was accused of doing, right? Like, yes. It's like now we're supposed to like... He's like Beyonce again. We're supposed to just be talking about his music, right? Michael right. Jackson. But mm-hmm. like he very likely... No, I don't want to get into like, you know. <laughs> hey, you can't libel a dead man. That's you can true. say what you want. He probably yeah. molested a lot of kids, oh. Michael yep. Jackson did. I'm just going to say it. He probably yep. did. And there was a lot of investigations and there are, you know, people who are credible people who say that he did. And yep. that was a dark, awful time. And he was just so, so famous. He's a lot more famous than they portrayed Monty as being in this episode. Right. Michael Jackson did not need to drive around peeping out of an ice cream truck, you know? <laughs> the Parents ice cream would just line up him. to go to his house. Yeah. I'm trying to think of who's famous enough right now. I mean, who is that famous now? Well, that- it's kind of like they really pulled the punch that Monty is he's not as mesmerizing a celebrity as Michael Jackson. He's more like an Eddie Murphy. But even still, if Eddie Murphy said, I want to bring your kids up to the woods nope. for a week, you'd still be like... <laughs> What the fuck, no. Eddie Murphy? Let me just tell you something. If I'm not Be- going to your secret lair in the woods. Let me just tell you something. If Beyonce and Jay-Z invited my kids to their house, I'd be like, nope. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm trying to think. The only person whose house I would allow my kids to go to, like maybe like Michelle and Barack, maybe. But they're not going to be living there much longer. But uh, <laughs> right. I don't know. I don't know. It was a dark time. This was, I think, a very dark episode. It was really dark. And to be honest, like... Uh, I get really pissed off when I'm like on Facebook or Twitter and everybody's like celebrating. And yes, he was a musical genius. He is a musical icon. Does that take away from the things that he has done? Absolutely not. And I have like I everyone's like, oh, Michael Jackson, like Michael Jackson this. And I'm just like, no, he is a freaking pedophile. And I just have a real problem with people that still celebrate him. And it's like, oh, the past is the past. Not to those children. Those children still deal with that and suffer with it every single day and their parents and you know what there's a lot of collateral damage there too so not to get on a soapbox or anything but i just felt like yeah it it's super dark and these poor kids like they have to live with this forever and hopefully they can sort of move past it now that he is yeah. no longer in the forefront of our pop culture every day well you know the writers did have a lot of little michael jackson elements from his life that they could put into Monty's character. And even though they did sort of their best to, you know, appease the folks over at Legal and making him a comedian and making him a New York white guy, (laughs) uh, I really think the only thing missing was the chimpanzee here. No, there was one big thing missing, actually, for me. The guy's four brothers? Well, no. I mean, Michael Jackson... I'm just going to say it, probably a child molester, right? Right. But there's also something about Michael Jackson's story that makes you wonder about his origin story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was a child star. He oh, probably yeah. had a lot of shady adults around him as a child. If he was, in fact, a child molester, he broke. He was broken at some point, right? Right. Yeah. We don't have a sympathetic backstory for Monty. Monty's just like a regular seeming guy who, by the way, also likes to sleep with kids in a secret room in his house. So to me, he, he's missing the whatever empathy factor you could have for Michael Jackson, which, you know, I have to say, I, I also have that. I want to know, like, what broke him so badly. Yeah. They don't put that into this story at all. I mean, you, you kind of get the gist from all of the horrible stuff you've heard about Joe Jackson. And I'm sure the pressure that he was under is one thing. But, you know, then his brothers go on to live somewhat normal as far as not being child molesters lives 
They can go but, on being has-been actors and yeah, singers. They, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they can just go on living their lives in Encino. Yep, I said it. They live in Encino. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that means, but it sounds bad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, I just feel like, you know, there's so much, like so many managers back then, and nobody talked about that stuff, and the drugs, and the this, and the that, and and growing up in that limelight, he was the cute little boy that had all of the attention. So all the women and all the hot chicks were going after the older brothers, and who was there to go after Michael but a bunch of creepy dudes. So the backstory there is probably super interesting because I feel like he never got past a 13-year-old's mindset, and I you got to wonder what happened. So I do, I do have sympathy for him in that case, but I don't have sympathy for people acting like it never happened. Now, the That's episode is called Smoke. Mm-hmm. And while it literally refers to the fire, it also refers to the smoke screen set up to protect Monty and the idea that where there's smoke, there's fire. Duh. <laughs> Wait, was that a question? <laughs> Stone cold silence. No, I, I do think that sometimes the writers of this show, especially the title writers, whoever is in charge of those production elements, they do get a little bit literary in that way. And yeah, it was about the smoke screen. I mean, beer gut. Uh, was willing to basically, she probably had some sort of contract saying that she could never say anything bad. So did the masseur, so did the stylist. And they said, I got to pay back everything. Yeah, that that very much exists. We know that it exists. We hear it over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite Hollywood stories, as you know, of the past few years has been the people breaking away from Scientology and sort of deciding to just say, screw it with these NDAs, because these are people who have money independently and don't need the NDAs to sort Mm -hmm. of maintain some level of fame. And those celebrities got name dropped in the episode. Some of them said, oh, there's always been these rumors around John Travolta (laughs) and Tom Cruise. Which was so interesting. That was so amazing. Can I just tell you on so many levels working where I worked and hearing the rumors and firsthand from people who were like the makeup artists or the next door neighbor of another very famous person. And, and they're all I, talking about upyourbutt.com. How did yeah. that get past legal? That's what I wanted. That's know. what I said. I don't know how standards well, and practices. Because it was very straight and factual that there had been rumors, but it was the defense attorney saying it. Yeah. If it was like McCoy saying, well, there's other weirdos out there like, <laughs> <laughs> like Bob Reno from <laughs> Welcome Back, Cotter. <laughs> You know, then all of a sudden they'd be like, well, we have a nice letter for you, Mr. Wolf. Are you saying there's something wrong with Bob Arena from Welcome Back, Cotter, Kevin? Hey, know, up what? your nose with a rubber hose. <laughs> Upyourbutt.com. Upyourbutt.net. Dot org. Dot gov. Dot edu. Dot biz. Dot au. Sorry, Australia. While Law & Order sometimes tries to right the wrongs done in real life in... This time, the bad guys were the parents of the victim. So what is the moral of this story? Moral of the story is if you're rich and famous, you're going to be fine. If you're a parent (laughs) who steps out of line, you're screwed. Lawner does this over and over and over again. They love going after negligent parents. It's one of the favorite tropes on the show. If you're not watching your kid in the park carefully enough, if you're sending a text message when you should have been, I don't know, doing something else... (laughs) They'll nail you to the wall if you're a parent on Law & Order. So I wasn't surprised by that ending at all. Aaron, how about you? Uh, yeah, no, I wasn't surprised by it, but I just I just thought it was so freaking heartbreaking that I just didn't want it to be the ending. I was like, no, no, but yeah, I see where you're going with that. And 
it's true. I mean, think of all the famous people that get away with stuff all the time. I mean, there's like half a documentaries on Netflix about that. But can we talk about the real crime in the episode? Which is what? Not only did they sell their child to this horrible child molesting celebrity, but then they sent him to Hudson University. <laughs> they got in, well, it is a very prestigious school. <laughs> I think we all kind of dropped our bowls of ice cream as we were watching that. It's such a prestigious university. And we all like clutched our pearls and dropped our ice cream. We're like, what? <laughs> no, no, it is not. It is where all the bad people go to get raped and murdered or do those things. So that's going to do it for us. We want to thank our guest, Aaron Fox. Aaron, where can listeners follow you online? You can follow me on Twitter at Squee TV, S-Q-U-E-E TV. And if you like pictures of kids and dogs and puppies and former red carpet shenanigans, I'm on uh, Instagram as Aaron underscore M underscore Fox. And Rebecca Lavoy, how can our listeners follow you? They can follow me on Twitter at Reb Lavoy and on Instagram at Reb Lavoy. And they can also follow our other show at Crime Writers On on Twitter. And you can track me on Twitter at Kevin P. Flynn. You can also tweet to us at Law and Order Pod. Our newsreader was Philip Ockelford. Our theme music was composed and performed by Uncanny Valleys. Line editing by Henry Lavoy. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave a review on iTunes. It helps others discover this program just like you did. All clips in this podcast were used in compliance with U.S. Copyrights Act Fair Use Exemption for criticism and commentary. Special thanks to the elite squad of the Law & Order Wiki community for preserving the evidence. If you want to know what episodes we're talking about in our upcoming shows, go to lawandorderpodcast.com. These Are Their Stories was recorded in Studio C and is a production of Partners in Crime Media. Partners in Crime Media. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better, too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.